welcome back to yet another episode of Scissors and Scrubs. Scissors and Scrubs. This is coming out. I'm actually looking at the calendar to see when we're gonna we record ahead of time. The 21st. It's gonna come out long after my birthday. It's gonna come out on my anniversary. Last one was on Mike's birthday, and this happy one's on my anniversary. anniversary. Happy anniversary! Happy anniversary! Happy anniversary! How many years? Eighteen. Oh, we're the same. Mm-hmm. We're we all the same. Track. I got married a few months before you. Apparently, so I took my new kitty to the bed the other day. They put his birthday down as my anniversary date. 7-20-2020. That's weird. Yeah, isn't it? I was like, oh, yeah. Because we really don't know when the hell the cat right. was born, but they picked my anniversary date. And I was like, oh, I'll always remember my anniversary. You know when they picked my dog's birthday? Because they didn't know. September 11th. Oh. Yeah. At least it I could can have gone with the 13th. I can remember it. Well, it's, everybody remembers that. I mean, I didn't pick it. It's a day that will live in infamy. Yep. Okay. So, to stay with the Labor Day theme, mm-hmm. we're doing some industrial accidents. Accidents. It's not really an industrial accident. It's a mishap. Mm-hmm. Really bad. Due to terrible conditions. Conditions. So, I cover the Triangle Shirt Waist Factory Fire. Yes. So, the first thing we're going to cover is, what the fuck a shirt waist <laughs> I was going to say, people probably don't know. <laughs> because... Anybody I've mentioned this to is like, what the box of shirtwaist? Yeah. And I have to say, I don't know. I had to look up. Okay. So first off, what is a shirtwaist? Mm-hmm. In the early 19th century, during the Edwardian period, oh. which if you're not familiar with the Edwardian period, it would be the period of Downton Abbey's, the grandmother would have lived during yes. the inter- Edwardian period. I was like, no, it's not. But no, yes, the grandmother. Yeah, the grandmother would have. The word waist at the time was used to describe the bodice of the dress mm-hmm. or a woman's shirt. Mm-hmm. Before shirt waists, you wore a corset and a full dress, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. Okay? So the shirt waist is a separate blouse. It's made like a shirt. So it has cuffs, buttons, uh, button down. It has collars. And in the mid-20th century, it's referred to a, as a dress with the other part, upper part fashioned like a man's shirt. I know that gets confusing. I will explain. <laughs> Uh, these shirt waists would have different embroidery added to them. You could have rhinestones, patterns. So before shirt waists, you always had a lady's maid helping you get dressed. Mm-hmm. The shirt waist was a button-down blouse, basically, and you would tuck it into those big, long skirts, yep. and you'd wear a belt around it, and it made an outfit. Mm-hmm. If you look at anybody in 1910, they're all wearing shirt waists, yes. okay? And it would you could put a brooch at the collar, it would have embroidery down the front the new woman that was like a working woman's shirt Mm -hmm. it's the first shirt to cross class lines so you Uh would have the rockefellers wearing it and the poorest prostitute could be wearing Mm -hmm. it so it was highly popular huge money Mm -hmm. big demand for these shirt waists uh women who entered the workforce would wear it so it was a symbol of the new woman Mm -hmm. it was also a staple among suffragettes so if we have any young little millennials who have no idea what the hell a suffragette Mm -hmm. is um in case you didn't know and didn't pay attention in history class women didn't get to even vote till 1920 Mm -hmm. a suffragette was women before then who were fighting to get us rights to vote Mm -hmm. and as i said it's the first government to cross party lines so to make these uh to the demand you were pumping them out in massive quantities because everybody no matter who you everybody wanted Mm -hmm. a shirt waist the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was run by Isaac Harris and Max Blanc. <laughs> I love Blanc. Blanc. They're both 
Russian Jewish immigrants who came in 1890 over as tailors. By 1910, they had started the shirtwaist factory, Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, in 1900. And by 1910, they became the shirtwaist kings. Wow. They lived uh, the American dream, having beautiful mansions up in Manhattan, complete with maids. The Triangle Factory brought in over a million dollars a year for that. Holy time. God! So it was a lot of fucking money for yeah. that time. All right. There were multiple other sweatshops making these shirts, but the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was the coup de grace. Mm-hmm. Okay. The factory took up the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of the Ash Building in the Lower East Side. Actually, it's Greenwich Village. Mm-hmm. It's right across from the scenic posh Washington Park oh. in Greenwich Village. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. It is staffed mostly by women of all ages, some as young as 14. Mm-hmm. Page look. Uh, many were families. You had mothers with daughters. Some mothers and sons were working there. Sisters, cousins. It was... Compared to the little sweatshops that people had been working in, the shirtwaist factory was like a plum place to work. Okay. It had high windows. It had high ceilings. But again, you when I tell you, it would be like a row of like a hundred sewing machines mm-hmm. and a hundred women sitting just at rows and rows of sewing machines, side to side to side to side to side right. to side. There's, I got a lot of this information from PBS's American um, Experience. Oh. If you ever get the chance, like they talk about all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff on that. They did an awesome job covering this story, and they show you pictures of what it was like for these women working there. So the the staff worked 14-hour days, six days a week, but $2 a day. This was before they were docked for the needles they used on the sewing (gasps) machines, docked for the thread they used on the sewing machines, and the electricity that the sewing the sewing machine used. How can you dock the they, worker because there's for no using union. the thing? I mean, there's that's no union, ridiculous. and these are the conditions these women oh were working in. Okay, you have to pay to make these, and <laughs> if you made a mistake, you got docked for that shirt. Oh God! So some of these women went home with no money <sighs> after a week's work right. because they had been docked for so much. So you didn't make a mistake, and what would happen too is some of the machines didn't work right. So electricity is just coming in. Mm-hmm. This company had electric sewing machines. It used to be, if you've ever seen an old-fashioned, yeah. it was a pedal. Mm-hmm. And you would rock the pedal back and forth. It would make the sewing machine. My father's bigger. parents have yeah. one of those in their front hall. I mean, you yeah. and like you hear stories of the women of that time. The babies would sit on there and they would yeah. rock while they would be sewing and they'd put the baby to sleep. So this was an electric sewing machine, but some of the machines wouldn't work right. If you got stuck at the machine that didn't work right, you were screwed. Oh, because you're going to screw up on the buttonholes or like one woman did buttonholes. That's all she did. 14 hours a day, six days a week, she fucking buttonholed. Somebody else put on the collars. Somebody else was doing the cuffs. Somebody did the embroidery. Mm-hmm. And, and as you can imagine, the scraps that they would have in that. So each sewing machine would have a bucket of scraps of shirts mm-hmm. filled pounds and pounds of scraps from these shirts. So um, the owners were terrified of losing Anything through theft. Oh. They didn't want to lose a button, a spool of thread, not even the scraps. So they locked all the doors <gasps> except for one. The doors, they would come in and out the same door. The foreman had the key. And they would exit that door and they would have to hold their purses open and they would be checked to make sure they didn't steal anything. Not even one shirtwaist. They didn't steal anything. These These two bosses were fuckers. Yeah. Like, th- they were fuckers. I hate them. I hate them now, and I hope their bones are rotting, and, and they're burning in hell. I hate them so much. So, um, they had seven elevators in the building, but only one worked. 
It was seven one, elevators. They had That's seven elevators. Mm, I think it was seven, maybe it was six. I don't know. They had a lot of elevators, but only one's working. Okay. And again, if this is all done so that they don't have to, they can they can check. Right. They had a fire extinguisher on the side of the building, which was, they had put it in. Instead of putting in the third stairwell, they cheaped out and they did this. Fire escape. Yes, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I was like, why yeah, would they, they have a fire, fire extinguisher no, they outside? They had a pathetic fire escape. Okay. Okay. Pathetic. So in October of 1909, workers in the garment district, which they talking on this American experience, like 100,000 people were working in the garment district oh in New God. York. When they show you scenes in New York and the turn, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah. Like, I think it's crowded now. Right. So they were packed in. It was crazy. They would all leave in the morning. They'd go work down at the garment district. But now they're starting, some of these little shops are starting to strike. And they're yeah. complaining about the pay, hours, safety conditions. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the Triangle Factory, which is one of the biggest factories, they decide they're going to go on strike too for the same reasons. Yeah. And when they describe, like, one woman's like, we were all sitting there, and we have our hats, and we have our purses, and we're waiting for one person to just get up, because they were all going to go on strike. Right. Every garment district company was going on strike the same day. And one girl gets up, and then she's like, the whole place just emptied out. It was so empowering, and they're going on. Right. Just imagine how much... Because these are all... Immigrants. That is exciting. It is. They're all immigrants. Right. They're all a lot of Italian immigrants, mm-hmm. a lot of Jewish immigrants. They barely speak English. Mm-hmm. They're leaving oppression and they're coming here and they have a say. They finally right. feel like they have a say yeah. in how to change things. So they go on strike. While they're on strike, Isaac and Max, these pillars of the community, hmm. they hire prostitutes to start fights in the picket lines. Oh, nice. They pay off the police. So the police would club the women <gasps> in line, arrest them. They'd go in front of the judge, who thinks that striking is a socialist movement. He'd send them to the workhouses in New York. These guys were great. Yeah. These that's... guys were great. Um, the Triangle Workers, they get 20,000 other people to go on strike with them. Wow. All over. It's all over the news. It's like, and they're striking for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Eventually, J.P. Morgan, mm-hmm. who at the time, and probably still, was the richest man in the United States. Mm-hmm. He was... Filthy, stinking, fucking rich. Mm-hmm. Not attractive at all. I couldn't even for that bunny. But you have to be rich and good looking. He was disgusting. His daughter in one of the Vanderbilts, mm-hmm. um, which if you've ever gone to Newport, mm-hmm. Rhode Island, you know where the Vanderbilts are. Mm-hmm. They join the cause for the strikers. Oh. They feel bad for these women. They join the cause. So once they, them and all this socialite friends mm-hmm. get on the picket lines, all of a sudden the girls aren't getting clubbed anymore. The prostitutes aren't starting mm-hmm. fights. The pimps would start fights. Like, all of that's oh my over. God. So in December, the bosses, because now it's starting to get, they're going to be in, the, right after Christmas, the busy season starts because it's this fall, fat, spring fashions and mm-hmm. this and that. So in December, ne- negotiations are going to start. And eventually the triangle workers are given more money. They're given less hours, but there's no union. It was still considered a private company. They okay. could not get the union in there. Okay. So the safety conditions are never addressed. All they got they was money and of less the door. Time. Yeah. So instead of working 14-hour days, they're working 12-hour days. Mm-hmm. Instead of $2 a day, they got $4 a day. Mm-hmm. But like, there's still only one door in and out. There's still one elevator that's working. They they wouldn't have... Um, there was no sprinkler system, so they would have like buckets of water. Now, you're working... In a tinderbox with yeah. all this fabric. Wood and A couple fabric. of boxes, a couple of pails of water would be around. That's about it. Yeah. Okay. So I want to stress that people knew about these workers. Because they had made all this news. Because they had made all this headline yeah. in the news. Yeah. Okay. And now they all go back to work. So now it's March 25th, 
1911. Mm -hmm. It's a Saturday. It is 4.41 in the afternoon. So it is the end of the work week. It's like the end end of of the the work work day. It's always the last. And some of the girls who survived were saying, you know, we were thinking about like we were going to Cody Island. We were going to go dancing. And I loved this guy. And we were going to do this. And we were going to have Sunday off. And it was so nice. We couldn't wait. Okay. So it's also important to note there had been other suspicious fires at this factory. Okay. Okay. They, the shirt waist was going out of style because it's 1911 Mm. now. So you're going to start getting shorter skirts Mm -hmm. until you get to the twenties. You're going to start getting different. Mm -hmm. So they're starting to go out of style. So they are worried about money. Okay. Okay. So none of this is at the table. No. All right. So the tables, they have, as I said, they have these scrap bins under them Mm -hmm. and a fire flares up at one of the cutters tables on the Northeast corner of the eighth floor and it's thought somebody threw a cigarette in there oh god so he, the eighth floor far corner starts the fire okay all right the first fire alarm to the fire department is sent at 4 45 four minutes after the fire oh. and it's set uh it's sent by a passerby on washington street he sees the smoke coming from the eighth floor so he alerts the fire department now and you gotta remember too at the time fire department's newfangled right they're newfangled right. things uh, that day, the owners both had their kids there. Uh-huh. Now, the owners are up on the 10th floor. All the workers are on the 9th floor. I'm going to get to them later. Okay. okay. So, they had their kids there. Yes. On the 8th floor, the fire is fed by the wooden bins under the tables, mm-hmm. and the sewing machines had hundreds of pounds of shirtwaist scraps. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of pounds because they wouldn't empty them either. Right. So, it's, you know, it should probably have been emptied every day. Hundreds of pounds of scraps. That coupled with hanging fabrics that you're cutting. Yeah. The fire spreads like ridiculous. Yeah. A bookkeeper on the eighth floor warns employees on the tenth floor, there's a fire down here. Nobody calls the ninth floor <gasps> where there's 200 women and men working. Nobody calls them. When the call goes out to the tenth floor, uh-huh. the owners scoot up to the roof, hop to the next building, come down, they're fine. Their kids are fine. Anybody on the tenth floor, they're fine because they just hopped to the roof and they got up. And all, literally all they had to do is tell the people on the ninth floor they could have gone up and hopped. It would have given them time. Maybe even a few more minutes. Yeah. It would have given them a little more time. So, according to Yetta Lubitz, <laughs> the first alarm of the fire shows up at the fire itself. So, the first hint of fire is when the fucking fire is on the ninth floor. Like, they look <gasps> up and there's the there's, fire. They're already on fire. They're on fire already. It's and If, you know, when you think of this room... And it's like lighting a wick. The first bin catches, mm-hmm. it's catching and catching and catching and right. catching. And it's getting hot. And you have all the dust fibers in yep. the air. It's it's bad. The staff rushes to the exit on the Green Street, which they use daily. So, like, remember we talked the about only coming up, you go to the exit. exit you know, that's the only, yep. So they all rush to the exit, but it's blocked by flames. All other doors are locked to prevent that. Mm. The foreman who has the key has already escaped. So they're locked in there. And they can't get out the one exit. Oh, my God. Dozens of employees escaped by going to the roof. Some Mm -hmm. of them were able. So this Green Street exit, they couldn't get down, but they could go up. So some of them had the foresight to go up to the 10th floor and get out. Others are trying to get on the freight elevator. Okay. The elevator is able to make a few trips. You have Joseph Zito and Gaspar Mortalotti. Okay. They are able. They actually were commended because they were able to save people. They kept making trips up and down this elevator. But... On on its last trip, it shouldn't have been its last trip, but it's its last trip because as the door shut, it leaves a gaping hole in the elevator shaft. P- 
people are jumping on top of the <gasps> elevator trying to ride Get it out. down and ride the yeah. cables down. And then there's such a crush of people. People are getting pushed into the elevator shaft. So they're falling to their death. Oh. And they're falling on the elevator. And it cripples the elevator so they can't get back up. Oh, God. Yeah. But at that point, you're just in panic. There, I mean, up. one of no the literally do. says, I looked, I got on the elevator. And my sister was on the other side of oh the gate. Oh, my God. And I watched her go up in flames. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's horrible. Yeah. Some try to get, they escape the fire by going to the fire escape, which is flimsy. They think it was broken before the fire even started. Mm. It's uh, it's an anchored iron structure. And uh, like I said, they think it was broken before the fire even started. So a few escape before eventually it twists and collapses from the heat and weight. And kill it killed everybody on the um, <gasps> fire, fire escape. escape from the ninth floor. These people. Come. Oh, God. The fire. Um, the fire department arrives quickly and they extend the ladders. They got like the old cranks. Yeah. They go as far as the sixth floor. 30 feet shy of where 30 they need feet. to be. 30 feet shy. And you can't jump onto a ladder. And you cannot jump onto a ladder. You can't even, there's not even a ledge they could shimmy down to that. So they're helpless. The fire department's <gasps> fucking helpless. They're holding on, the, you know, so if you've, it's a bad analogy, but if you've ever seen Dumbo. Yes. You know when they pretend to be firemen and they've got the big oh, yes. net? Right. That's what they're holding. And these people are jumping from the ninth floor. They're going right through the right net. Right through the nets. Oh, and they're my God. ripping the nets out of the fire department's hands so they're bloody, just, but they're picking the nets back up, trying to catch somebody else. They're just trying to do something because oh they're so helpless. People are saying, so at this point, um, it's so bad, people are jumping from the windows. Just to So die. the fire department, like, people are from Washington Park are crowding around the building now because it's right there. They're all here on the fire engines. Mm. They're following the fire engines. And they look up and they're like, you could just see women lined on fire and then bodies falling from the sky on fire it's like i mean you have to listen to the story it is crazy so william gunn shepherd is a reporter Uh on scene and he learned a new sound that day oh no thud of a living speeding body on a stone sidewalk oh god some described flame uh flaming women with their hair traveling up on fire upward from the sky falling from windows the fight apartment Hit, so these people would hit the ground on fire and then the fight department would put Holds them on. So this guy writes, um, Lewis Waldman, he was a New York socialite state assemblyman. He describes the scene years after it happened. Mm-hmm. One Saturday afternoon in March of that year, March 25th to be precise, I was sitting at one of the reading tables in the old Astor Library. Mm-hmm. Astor died on the Titanic. Mm-hmm. It was raw unpleasant day and the comfortable reading room seemed a delightful place to spend the remaining few hours until the library closed it's exactly where i spend my remaining few hours a day <laughs> i was deeply engrossed in my book when i became aware of fire engines racing past the building and who doesn't always follow the sounds you engine. always look along with several others in the library i ran out to see what was happening and followed crowds of people to the scene of the fire a few blocks away the ash building at the corner of washington place and green street was ablaze when we arrived at the scene, the police had thrown up a cordon around the area and the firemen were helplessly fighting the blaze. The 8th, ninth, and 10th stories of the building were now an enormous roaring cornice of flames. Hmm. This guy's got a way with words. Well, that's why he's always in the library. Always. Word had spread through the east side by some magic of terror that the plant of the Triangle Waste Company was on fire and that several hundred workers were trapped. Horrified and helpless, the crowds, I among them, looked up at the burning building. Oh, hang on. I have to turn the page. I thought I had it all in one. Sorry. <laughs> And saw girl after girl, girl appear at the red windows, pause for a terrified moment, and then leap to the pavement below to land as a mangled, bloody pulp. 
This went on for what seemed a ghastly eternity. Occasionally, a girl who had hesitated too long was licked by pursuing flames and, screaming with clothing and hair ablaze, plunged like a living torch to the street. Light nets held by the firemen were torn by the impact of the falling bodies. The emotions of the crowd were indescribable. Women were historical, hysterical, scores fainted. Many men wept as in prox... Paroxysm, I can't even. As in fury, they hurled themselves against the police lines. <sighs> because I think you have that feeling. Like, I ha- how yeah, can we be doing nothing? you're just watching people burn right. to death. Nobody I, wants to see that. Or faulted. I, right. I can't. Ugh. So it's like 9-11 meets Coconut Grove. Yeah. Because they're just hearing the thumping of bodies. Oh, dumping. Within 30 minutes, the fire department is able to get the fire under control. Three hours later... The bodies, so they have block and tackle. I know, you know, people know what that is. It's literally a block and you have a, it's like a pulley system. They're using block and tackle and they're lowered, lowering whoever's left on the factory floor down the building. The same policemen who were beating them a couple of right. months ago are now watching to make sure their bodies don't hit the buildings and they go down with grace. Um, even the hardest police... We're having a hard time, and they had to switch the police out every hour. The oh. fight department had to switch out every hour because the smell, the oh, sight. The sights. Yeah. If you've ever even been near somebody who's had a mm-hmm. bad burn, it is not something you ever want to see. Mm-mm. The next day, they have a makeshift morgue at Charity's Pier, also known as Misery Lane, appropriate. Mm-hmm. And they it's set up by the East family, uh, East River, for the families to identify the bodies. Each body is laid in a casket. And there's pictures of this. If you Google shirtwaist triangle factory fire... Triangle factory fire, whatever, it will pop up. You'll see pictures of bodies on the sidewalk. You will see this morgue set up. Mm-hmm. They are pretty graphic with yeah. the burned bo- uh, the burned bodies in there. So each body's laid in a casket with the heads propped on a white pillow. And it's just rows and rows of casket with people just walking by them, trying to find something that they, like one girl's like, I knew it was my mother because I had braided her hair that morning. Ugh. And that's the way she braided it. Another one, the dentist recognized the work, so he was able to identify a girl. Uh, one poor old fucker, he loses his wife and his two daughters. Ugh. One who's 14, she's the youngest victim. Ugh. In all, on that particular day, 145 died. One jumper, Sarah Cooper, 16, survived for one day, and she died the next morning, bringing the total to 146. Mm. 53 jumped to their deaths. 19 died in the elevator shaft. Oh. 20 died on the fire escape, and 50 died on the factory floor. Of the 146, 23 were men. More than half were teenagers. Oh, my that, God. That was hard. New York City goes into deep mourning. These were the same girls that they had stood beside and fought for mm-hmm. not that long ago, and they were fighting for fair wages and safe working conditions. Mm-hmm. They knew the girls. New York residents raised money for the burials, because a lot of these girls... They're immigrants, so they're sending the pittance they made mm-hmm. home to Italy, home to Poland, home to Russia, or their families were depending on this money, and now that is gone. Like, mm-hmm. when we went to Ireland, we talked about the Titanic. Mm-hmm. A lot of villages in Ireland were decimated because the people who died on it were coming to America to, to make money, money to send yeah. home. So this is kind of the same situation. So New York City residents at the time collected money to help the families pay for burials mm-hmm. and to help the families. Mm-hmm. So... Um, as I said, one man lost his wife and both his daughters. Lots. I mean, it was bad. Now we get back to fucking Isaac and Max. Oh, these those peaches. Charmers. These peaches. They brought up a manslaughter charges. Thank God. But you have to also remember 
the day and age we're talking about. Mm-hmm. They're business owners. Mm-hmm. They're wealthy. Mm-hmm. They're white. Mm-hmm. It's the day and age. They're men. So they get acquitted. Of course they do. They're pretty sure the juries were tampered with. Mm-hmm. Not only do they get acquitted, mm-hmm. they get the insurance money. Mm-hmm. $400 per body. No, they didn't. They walk away with $60,000 off the death of all these women. And no, they didn't. As God is my witness. That's disgusting. As God is these pieces of shit. Get sixty thousand dollars, which today would probably be four million. A gazillion, yeah. Because they made four hundred a body. That's disgusting. That's disgusting. Yep. By nineteen thirteen, Max Peach that he is is arrested again, and he's charged the max fine of twenty dollars because he's still locking the fucking doors <gasps> in the factory for theft. You cheap bastard! How could you even... still locking the fucking doors? Oh my god! Yep. I can't. I was gonna to try to get up swearing, but not in this episode. You were gonna to try to get up swearing. I was going. I feel like I really do have such a mouth that I really need to. Like talk about. on the podcast or in no, life? No, like just in life. Oh. I need to slow down. It wouldn't be <laughs> me, but I mean, throw throttle back. I know a few of the thoughts. Okay. A massive funeral is held and it's paraded through Greenwich Village to mourn all those lost. Over a hundred thousand people attend the funeral, and it's wow. like, you know, it's. Victorian age kind of so it's those um, the horses with the big plumes mm-hmm. on their heads mm-hmm. they're draped in massive cascades of flour and it's carrying an empty glass I was going to say is it the glass casket? An empty glass mm-hmm. casket for everybody because right. for a while six of them weren't identified I don't there was a story on how they were I don't remember how they were identified but six of them Ugh. weren't identified for a very long time I think people later like maybe in the 40s or 50s went out of their way to make sure these girls or these people got identified okay on October 14th of 1911, as a direct result of the fire, the American Society of Safety Professionals was founded in New York City. Within two years, the Safety Commission instituted 30 new safety laws. I gotta take a breath. Okay. <laughs> it instituted minimum wage, it established working hours, and it started to address child labor. Mm-hmm. It addressed every issue that the Triangle Factory workers had fought for. They set the standards for the rest of the country to follow. And that... Is my story of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire of 1911. Oh, that was awful. That's terrible. That's and I terrible. knew the story, and it was still awful. I had never heard the story. I still can't believe it. And never of course, heard. when you're like, do the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, I'm like, does that even make sense? What are you saying? Is that even? I've never even <laughs> what? heard. What is a shirtwaist? <laughs> um, and then I started investigating it, and mm-hmm. then Brian came home the other day, and I'm glued to the television. Is like they're talking about burning bodies. He's like, what the hell are you watching? <laughs> what I'm like, are you the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire? Where are fire? the children? It was fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating, I tell you. It's so awful. It's remotely related to nursing. Well, there's birds. birds. They had to go to the hospital. No, they didn't even survive long enough to go. I mean, I'm sure a couple of them. Well, one girl does one go girl. to the hospital yes. and survive for a day. Okay. Yep. Laura, take it away. What you got? Sticking okay. to I got my information from boston.com. Whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop. And history.com. But mostly boston.com. I was on Wikipedia in the American experience. Yes. Um, I did the Great Boston Molasses Flood mm-hmm. of 1919. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which some people in the North End will say you can still smell the molasses today. Yep. Um, on January 15th, 1919, just past noon. You know, yep. all this shit happens in those teens of the 1900s. It's really bad. It was Titanic, bad. these, the shirtwaist, it's yeah. bad. 1919, my aunt was born in 1919. Oh. Okay, guys. Um, I'm sure I had an aunt and uncle born no, in 1919. She was ancient. Um, okay, so January 15th, 1919, little past noon. The U.S. Industrial Alcohol's 50-foot-tall storage tank explodes. Woo! The tank unleashed 2.5 million gallons 
2.5 million gallons, a lot of, fucking gallons. of molasses onto the streets of Boston. More specifically, the North I End. couldn't get 2.5 ounces of molasses out of my goddamn container if I was making, um, I make something, maybe pumpkin pie. Yeah. You can't we, get the molasses. No, it's so Literally viscous. Literally slow as molasses. Yes. How the hell did it get out of there? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the force. The force. So that's enough molasses to fill 3.5 Olympic-sized pools. <laughs> that's a lot <laughs> of molasses. <laughs> a lot of molasses. Witnesses said there was a rumble that some thought, so I don't, people not from Boston or people younger than 30 in Boston, the trains used to be above head. Yeah. Like in the north end, the north part of Boston, the rails were above you. Elevated. Everything was elevated. Yep. Um, so some people thought it was the overhead trains, the rumble. Do you remember those? And then they oh, could yeah. hear the screeching like yeah. from the remember trains. Remember in front of the garden? Yeah. Because they would go curve. around the garden yeah. down to Leechmere. Um, when they looked to see what the noise was, they saw a wave of molasses. Could you imagine? 50 feet tall. Could you imagine? No! Looking around and like, holy shit, what is that? Yeah. At the front, it was 50 feet tall, and it was flowing up to 35 miles per hour. So molasses really isn't slow. I mean... Only when you're cooking with it? Yeah. Only when you really need it, it's slow. Um, Once they heard the rumble, it was too late to escape its path. So if you heard it, you churned, it's too late. You can't... You cannot outrun these molasses. You can't outrun them. You can't (laughs) wave a molasses coming at you. The force of the tank exploding and the molasses flowing shook three houses to the ground. Are you serious? Yep. Um, and made many others jump off their foundations. So if your house, like my house Holy is here, shit. it jumped out into the street. <laughs> no. One Holy of the, shit, the shit, the house just guts off the foundation. One of them jumps out and the rail is like in front of the house, the overhead rail. It jumps out, hits the rail and crumbles down. Like that's how... Fire. I mean, the rail was probably not far from the house, but it jumped off its foundation, hit the rail, collapsed, like a whole thing. That's bizarre. Yeah. Um, and many people, you know, obviously if they're throwing houses off the foundation, if you're walking down the street. You're going to feel that. You're falling. Yeah. If the horses. And then molasses is going to get you. Yeah. And the horses like carrying, carry, they're falling. They're running. They're, oh, it's not good. Horses. Yeah. Um, it also knocked down a support for the overhead train tracks. Oh. Um, the wreckage stretched out over a 250 foot. Um, radius. Wow. Yeah. So molasses is a viscous product of refining sugar, of refining sugar cane into sugar. The U.S. Industrial Alcohol Company was storing it in this big, huge, it was like a 50 foot high and like 90 foot around. I mean, I'm really referencing Disney this episode, Uh but if you've ever seen Lady and the Tramp, Uh he is going to the dog pound. And if you look in the distance, I think that is the kind of container it was in. There's a container on the hill in the in Lady and the Tramp. And I think it's like an old... It's like the old water tower. Yes, kind of like a yeah. big, huge yeah. drum up in the air. Um, so they were storing it because um, it is a principal ingredient in the um, distillation of rum. Um, so that's why they had the all this molasses. Is right around the corner. Right, so they're storing they're up, they're making all they're this rum. Bootleg. It is so sticky. It is also used as a minor component of mortar for brickwork. That's how sticky molasses is. Are you shitting me? It's in mortar. Nope, I'm not shitting you. So you could eat those bricks and then dip them in the rum. But that's how sticky this stuff is. That's some sticky shit. Um. So now picture this wave of sweet, sticky, thick molasses rolling down the street of Boston. Because the, the thing was on a hill. 
So it's it's going to get a little momentum coming down. It's hill. it's well, it's in the north. I mean, there's no yeah. It was slightly elevated, okay. but it was the power of like the it letting go right. that sent it flying. So it's rolling. So this big huge rogue wave of molasses. <laughs> rogue wave. Rogue wave. <laughs> With no warning. Like, no warning. There wasn't a noise. There wasn't an alarm. It was just, just boom, boom. You turn around this fucking molasses yeah. behind you. Sneaking up on you. It's going to get you. Yeah. If you were in the way, you were stuck. And Literally. rescuers had a hard time moving through it to get to people in animals. So you yeah. might have seen your friend fall. You can barely get to them because of how, how deep sticky was it and after biscuit. the wave came through, did it say? Um, it does. Somewhere in here. Obviously, it maybe it um, Maybe it doesn't. It was, like up, it was only, like, up to a foot after it settles. But it's still the molasses. wave coming through is 50 feet high. So that's getting you first. And right. then you're stuck down in the foot of molasses. Um, the wave was done in five minutes. So it's five if minutes of molasses flowing through. And then everything's stagnant. Because it's not receding anywhere. No, it's just staying it's, where it is. It's molasses. Yeah. It's going to stay. The recovery and cleanup would take way longer. 21 people died. Wow. 150 were injured. And 25 horses died. Wow. Mm-hmm. They all mostly died from suffocation Aww. or by being crushed. This is a quote. Um, there was no escape from the wave. Caught human being and animal alike could not flee. Running in it was impossible. Snared in its flood was to be stifled. Once it snared ahead, human or animal, there was no coughing off the sticky mess. To attempt to wipe it with hands was to make it worse. Most of those who died died from suffocation. It plugged nostrils almost airtight. Oh, that would be a horrible way yeah, to die. Yeah, it's just, like, but think about, you're laying in that or getting hit by that. It's just covering. That's a horrible oh way my to God. die. Um, people started reporting family members missing, like, almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, crews worked around the clock to find people in bodies. Their efforts were hampered even more that evening when temperatures plummeted. <gasps> and froze it. Yeah. Molasses don't freeze. <laughs> my molasses don't freeze. But they do congeal. So pretty much. It just got thicker and thicker and thicker. What month is this? January. Oh, yeah. It can get pretty cold. Yeah. People had to go out with picks and axes to try to get through the molasses. Um, People were also under debris um, caused um, when the molasses tank exploded and all those parts fell. The fallen buildings, the overhead train tracks. um, So all that's in the molasses. It was like impossible to get these people in bodies. Um, it took weeks to recover all the bodies that were under it. Um, rescue crews pumped water from fire hydrants to try to wash away the molasses. Yeah. Good thought. Freeze. Yep. Um, but that did not work. A firefighter finally came up with the idea to pump ocean water into oh, the, the area because of the salt. salt. Thinking that the brine of the salt water would break up the molasses. And it did. Thank God. Millions of gallons of salt water were pumped in. This left the harbor with a brown coloring for months. <laughs> it was still, still brown, brown when I was growing yeah. up. I don't know what it Slightly is. Slightly clearer. It's still pretty brown. Yeah. Um, they also had to bring in hydraulic pumps to pump out all the molasses in all the area basements. Oh. Because up in New England, we have basements in a Because I know a lot of places don't actually have basements. No, we have basements. Everybody Your basement's street level, so all the molasses is just flowing into your basement. Oh, so they had, like, it took that. forever to get the molasses out of these buildings. Um, it took six months to get the area back to normal. That's a long time. Yeah. Molasses were seen all over Boston for uh, <laughs> way longer after. Until 2000. Yeah. 
You would find it on the floors of the trains because people walking on the street and yeah. walking into the train, horse troughs, um, pay phones. The smell of molasses was reported for decades after on hot days in the North End. It still has a weird smell down there. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's... I think now it's just urine. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, the reason for the tank letting go was debated by scientists and the courts and everybody forever. Right. Um, obviously, the USIA um, had to go to court because their tank exploded and killed all these people. Um, the USIA insisted that an anarchist dropped a bomb into the tank, and oh that's why God. it exploded. The shit they came up with back then. I can't. I'll tell you, the shit no. they came up with. Um, immediate news coverage thought the fermentation in the tank because of the sugar and the molasses um, caused too much pressure in the tank. The USIA was found liable after years of trials and... Um, but they never really proved what happened. I had heard mm-hmm. the tank was old and didn't have enough rivets or something. Do you cover so, that? Yeah. Okay, okay. So they did, they do studies like up till now, like yeah. these scientists at Harvard and MIT, but they study, they all study this molasses. They have nothing else to do. Well, it's, I think it's just something, I mean, it's awful. People did die. It's terribly hurt, interesting. But it's so bizarre. Like, yeah. um, so recent studies have found fundamental problems with the tank. Its steel walls were too thin to support a full tank. Um, there was a flawed rivet design, and the stresses on the rivet holes were too high. Um, okay. So that had caused cracks, like near the rivet holes. Yep. Children would go and stand around the tank with little cups to get the molasses that were dripping down when they would fill it up, because it would fill to the cracks, and the cracks would leak down. <laughs> no. Um, and they'd bring the molasses home, yeah. and um, it had been filled 29 times previously but it had only been filled to capacity four times and this time was the fourth being two days before the um flood the rivets and thinness of the metal and ignoring warning signs such as the leaks and the groaning the tank would make that's when it was being said that it would be groaning yeah um were negligence so the company should have been held liable um also unbeknownst to the engineers at the time the steel had been made with too little manganese. I don't <laughs> That makes the metal brittle below the temperature of 59 degrees Fahrenheit. And now you're in Boston in January. Yeah. The day of the flood, the temperature was 40 degrees. It was a warm January day. Mm-hmm. I have 40 degrees, but 19 degrees below what, what it should have been. Um, there were a lot of reasons that the tank was a ticking time bomb. Also, if it had happened in July, the molasses would have been thinner. And oh, would not have caused so much damage because it just would have been, yeah, it would have been much, much thinner, but it was so viscous because of the cold. So it, everything added up to just this huge disaster. So like I said, 21 people died. So I have little synopsis mm-hmm. of the 20. Um, I don't know if all 21. I think so. So first, Pasquale Iantosca. We are oh, in the North End. Pasquale. Yeah. The 10-year-old who lived on Charter Street was reportedly collecting firewood near the molasses mm-hmm. tank while home from school for lunch. When the um, explosion occurred, um, the boy's father, Giuseppe, was watching from their apartment window and saw the moment Pasquale disappeared into the viscous oh, mass. Oh, that's terrible. He searched for his son for hours. Um, the 10-year-old's body found in the ruins caused by the collapse of the tank on Commercial Street was identified, wasn't identified until mid-January. Oh, yeah. Flaminio Gallerani. Okay, we have to just tell you right now, the North End... It's all Italian. Up until 1995? I don't know. No, no. I'm going to say 2005. It was all Italian. Yeah. Now it's everybody, but it was all Italian. Yes. Um, the body 
of 37-year-old driver from Norwood wasn't found until 11 days after the flood. He worked for Balboni's Boston in Norwood Auto Express, and he was reported missing in the immediate days following the disaster. He, it's thought that he was sitting in his trunk truck at the time of the collapse of the tank. Um, and they, they found him in his truck. Um, Cesar Nicolo, the body of the, Cesar. the body of the 32 year old who worked as an expressman or a wagon driver was found four months after the tragedy. <gasps> Under, wow. Yeah. Under commercial wharf. Well, imagine what he was like. Oh, I can't. Four months later. I wonder if the sugar, though, helped. I don't know. I don't know. I mean. Patrick Breen. According what to... What is he doing down there? I know. The He's 40, not Italian. Well, he was a 44-year-old who worked as a laborer at the North End uh, Paving Yard. No, laborers are Irish. There you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, William Patrick Brogan. Breen. We got a bunch of patties here. Oh, God bless. William Brogan. 61-year-old was a resident of East Boston. He worked as a teamster, which at the time... Referred to a man who drove a team of horses, not the Teamsters that we have now. Yeah. I was like, oh, wow, is that where they got the names? Oh, no. Um, he, so they typically transported goods in a wagon, and he was so killed. So this is long before Jimmy Hoffa. Yes. Bridget Clarty. Bridget! 65-year-old. Bridget. Yep. Was crushed by a collapsed building. So Jeez. this is the one. She was in her old homestead, which extended along Commercial Street with her daughter and two sons. Martin and Stephen, when the first shock came from the explosion, so that first rumble. And this is a quote. The tremendous rush of air created when the great sides of the giant molasses tank opened out created a vacuum of such force it pulled the house into Commercial Street and it fell a heap of ruins beneath the elevated structure where the uprights were broken. The 65-year-old was carried along to where her home fell, the roof collapsing and crushing out her life. Um, she died before anybody could get to her. Her son, Martin, was one of the best-known young men about Boston. Oh, was hot. At the time. Um, and he said, It seemed as if the house had split in two when it hit the elevated structure, and I was in one side and my people in the other. Oh, no. I couldn't find my mother. I shouted for her and yelled for those who had come along the street to find her, but I couldn't locate her. It seemed an hour while I was trying to find her, but soon someone told me she had been found and that she was dead. Um, Stephen Clarty. Clarty. The family of the 34-year-old argued that his death later in an insane asylum w- was caused by the trauma his, he sustained in the flood that killed his mother. So he had a little PTSD. Yeah, so he's the son of this woman that was crushed by her house. Um, but they were awarded no damages for his death. Of course not. No. Course but not. he... I'm going to prove that then. He had been eating lunch with his sister in the house when it occurred. And they were both thrown in the street. The mother went with the house and got collapsed on. Um, but he lived in an insane asylum pretty much the rest of his life. Until he died. Um, John Callahan. Oh, Mr. Callahan. Mm-hmm. The body of the 10-year-old was found early oh, in the recovery process. Yep. Buried beneath a pile of molasses barrels near the base of the wrecked tank. Wait a minute. I'm not laughing at the little boy. I'm laughing at Lawrence. I'm sorry, because I'm out of order. What the hell she read? Ah, sorry. Go back. Okay. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so John Callahan. John Callahan was a 43-year-old who worked as a paver at the North End Paving Yard. Found it. Maria Destacio. Her She was 10 years old. Her body was found very early in the recovery process. Buried beneath a pile of molasses barrels near the base of the wrecked tank. She had been gathering wood in the yard, like that other 10-year-old, 
um, when the accident happened. Sad-hearted workers lifted her bruised little body onto a stretcher and silently bore it across North End Talk oh, to wow. a waiting ambulance. Her brother Antonio was also caught up in the molasses, and he was hospitalized. Um, he told the Globe that they were returning home from school for lunch. So this just happened at, like, the worst time with all these little kids and, around. And this is why the kids should go back to school. Right. Something bad's going to happen. Mary ran toward the tank, he said. I ran the other way. But the last molasses was up around my knees and threw me down. But he did survive. Mm-hmm. William Duffy. Um, 58-year-old. Work, he worked as a laborer in the North End Paving Yard. Um, he was born in the North End and had worked as a stonecutter for the city of Boston for 21 years. He was a West End resident, which now the West End has one building left. Right. Most of it's Mass General. Right. But it just has that one house yeah. left outside the yard. And I love it. Um, he was the member of the Chevrolet Court. Um, he was survived by his wife of 35 years and a 19-year-old daughter. Peter Francis was a Charlestown resident. That's, his, that's a Charlestown name. Yeah. Oh, Peter Francis. Yeah. Uh, he died at a relief hospital. Um, and he had to be identified by his clothing, by his son. Oh, he was a 64-year-old blacksmith, was working at the North End Paving Yard when the molasses flooded the area. Because it was the tank was pretty much in this paving mm-hmm. yard. Um, he was one of the first victims taken to the relief hospital. Um, he briefly regained consciousness and was given his last rites before he died. He had been born in Ireland, and he had worked for the city for 20 years, and was a prominent member of St. Catholic's Parish in Charlestown. Very Charlestown man. Yes. Um he was survived by his wife, four daughters, and five sons. Oh, my God. He was busy. Mm-hmm. Um, James. She must have been like, not for nothing, but at least I'm not going to have any more. Kids. I know. <laughs> James H. Keneally. Um, the Globe, the Boston Globe, reported following the flood that Keneally was a valued employee of the city who had lived in South Boston for about 12 years. He worked as a laborer at the North End Paving Yard. Oh, my God. And his wife later testified in court that they'd been married for 30 years at the time of his death and had nine children together, five of whom were alive when she testified. <laughs> she had a rough... Yeah, it sounds yeah. like it. Now her husband's dead. Eric Laird was a 17-year-old from Charlestown, and he was a driver for the Baxter and Oldfield Express Company and was delivering freight at the time of the explosion. His body was found under the molasses-coated mass of wrecked auto trucks, express boxes, and packages in the freight ship of the Bay State Electrical Freight Railway. Um, so he was just crushed. Um, George? Well, by molasses and shit. In cars. I mean, mm. George Leahy, the 38-year-old firefighter, was crushed in the wreckage of the nearby firehouse. Wow. Um, yeah. Members of the Boston Fire Department chopped and dug at the debris of the station's quarters to rescue those who had been buried when the molasses flood caused part of the building to collapse. Wow. Uh, it was nearly four hours after the disaster that the work of these men was finished, and then it was when the body of George Leahy, third engineer on the fire board, was taken from under heavy timbers, held down by the piano and pool table, still oh. warm, but life extinct. Leahy was reportedly going extinct. Yeah. I'm going to start saying that word. Yes. He's warm, but life Life is extinct. Um, Leahy was reportedly going to bed shortly before the disaster. He was found at the foot of the station's sliding pole. Mm. So he was trying, it sounds like he was trying to get out. Um, James Lennon, a 64-year-old foreman at the paving department, and he was killed when the building where he was eating lunch collapsed. A resident of Roxbury for 25 years, Lennon was born in Ireland. Um... And, but he came as a young man to the United States. He attended Boston Public Schools. Um, he worked for the Highway Division of Public Works. 
for 25 years and he was really well known in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, Ralph Martin was 21. He was born in Boston and served in the Navy for a year. He'd been working as a storekeeper at the services Hingham camp until two months before the explosion. Mm-hmm. At the time of his death, he was working as a driver for Blackstone Supply Company. He was the on- Blackstone Supply Company really got them in the pavers. Yeah, they, they took yeah. a big hit. He was unloading goods from a wagon when knocked down by the bursting of the tank nearby. Um, Michael Sonat was a 76-year-old Dorchester man who was working as a messenger for the public works. Did you works. say his last name was Sonat? Sonat. Um, I'm sorry. 76-year-old Dorchester man was working as a messenger for the public works department. He had returned to work 20 minutes before the explosion. And he was thrown several feet against a pile of paving oh. stones, suffered a fractured skull, both legs broken, contusions, and internal injuries. Wow, that was quite a blast. Yeah. James McMullen uh, was a 46-year-old who was working as a foreman for the Bay State Express. Um, he was also born in Ireland. Moved to Charlestown in 1903. See, Charlestown and the North End, very close. Well, they all married each other. But very different, yeah. <laughs> they literally are separated by a bridge. Yeah. You couldn't get more different. Um, he and his son um, were returning home from South Boston when they were on Commercial Street when they were caught in the flood of the molasses and the wreckage. He died at the hospital. His 14-year-old son was treated for injuries. Um, Peter Shaughnessy was an 18-year-old teamster. Um, he Meaning was a, somebody who drove a team of horses. Right. Not a teamster no, was in the union. Yeah, wasn't working um, with Jimmy Hoffa. He was unmarried and widely known South Boston resident. He was still missing two days after the disaster. His horse, covered with molasses, was found dead. Like on January sixteenth, they never they didn't find any traces of him. Oh, ever? Not that I know of. Really? Um, and I there's um, John Cyberlick. I just like that. I don't know that that's how you say that, but he was a 69-year-old blacksmith who worked in the North End Paving Yard. Uh, he was born in Germany, became a naturalized citizen. He lived in Roxbury. He was widely known in South Boston. Um, he worked for the city for 47 years. Ooh. Yeah. So it was his custom to go into the office to rest after his noon mail each day. He's like 90 years old if he's worked for the town for 47. I mean, back then, 47 years at a company? That's forever. That's forever. Right. Um, he was 69, so that's what, he was 22. That's old for yeah. then, though. Yeah. That's 1919. Right. So he went back to the office, had a little nap at lunch. How do you do? And he died of his injuries at the Haymarket Square Relief Station. Wow. And that's... Did you ever hear the story of some kids surfed the wave? I heard, like, one of the 10-year-olds or something. Yeah. And yeah. survived. Yeah. I wonder if it's that little, that Antonio, because I, I think that's like who they're caught, talking caught about. caught up in the front of the wave. Yes. And it just pushed him... He but he, like, of, wrote it in. Yeah. yeah. I I think that might be that little Antonio that sisters died. How do you ever top that story? Listen, I rode the Great Molasses Wave. Of 1990. Of 1919. Beat that, pal. Yeah. You climbed Everest? I rode the Molasses Wave. Right. I mean, that's not... I mean, God willing, that's never going to happen again, so... Well... He wins. Yeah, that's... Yeah. It killed 21 people. Like, it's kind of a joke. In, not a joke. I don't mean it's a joke. But it's... It's... You weren't there because it's so far removed from it. It's over 100 years ago that people are like, oh, yeah, the molasses. Molasses. I even bought it. died from molasses. And that's what one of the scientists was saying. Like, oh, we, you know, I went to Harvard or MIT or wherever the heck she went. And they were, like, talking about it. And she was like, what? Like, molasses. She's like, then you start looking into it. And it's like, oh, my God. Like, it's just bizarre. It's just a bizarre freak accident. That destroyed a neighborhood in Boston for a long time. Killing 21 people. Yeah. 
I don't want to die by molasses unless I beat myself to death with pumpkin pie. Suffocating in molasses. Ugh, up your nose. That's awful. Well, yeah. Another Labor Day story there for you. Yes. So again, don't be shoddy with your work. Make sure your tanks are good. Stay away from the molasses. No. Don't be cutting any shirt waists. No. Um. So as you can see, we love to talk about these fabulous topics, mm-hmm. but you know what's around the corner? Halloween. Halloween. My favorite holiday of the year. <laughs> so we kind of cover something in the middle of October. We talked about it. I don't know what it was. Yeah. But we're and not telling we're anyways because we change it. Anyways. We're going to cover some good shit for yeah. Halloween. So I mean, it won't be. Birkin tea chest. No. 10 pounds from Dr. Knox. But. I was listening to something and they were like, and she died by what they called Birkin. And I was like, oh, I know what that is. <laughs> well, if you listen to last year's Halloween episode, no. you two will know what Birkin is. It's actually very entertaining. It is. Um, all right. So on that note, again, I'm going to ask again because I, I'm going to. <laughs> Write some reviews for us. Send us some emails. We'd love to hear from you. Yes. Um, Give us some ideas. Christmas is coming up. We have one great idea for Christmas, but um, I'll take some more if you guys have any of it. Anything. You know, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah. I love hearing my little emails. Mm-hmm. I enjoy your fall apple picking and pumpkin, pumpkin picking and coffees. And, and, yes. Mm-hmm. And leaf decorations. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can't wait. I'm going to snuggle with my kitties. <laughs> Maybe someday my kids will go back to school. Rumor has it October. No, that's not going to happen. My teachers are going to die. They're all going to die if they go back to school, so. Oh, boy. Yeah, they're all writing their wills. Oh. Did you know that? No. I've been going working through COVID. We've both been working through COVID yeah. since March, but I didn't write my will. But they're writing wills. I already had a will, All right. So. I'm awful bitter about that. We should all. Are, everybody just get your wills in My will place. is written. No, no one has to worry about it. But I didn't write it because of COVID. Know, what I'm saying is you should already have one. You could get hit by a train tomorrow. I haven't had more than five minutes alone in that house. <laughs> In six months. Listen, a rogue wave of molasses could oh come down God. the street. And then they'd all be home and die. So if they were in school, I could save them. Write your will now. Oh. Just to stay safe. Laura, I'll leave you my kitties. <laughs> <laughs> and if those of you who know Laura know how much she would stick them in a bag and drown them in the Charles River. Um, I would. She hates cats. <laughs> my daughter literally is like, how could she hate this little kitty? I'm like, she hates cats. Because it will claw your eyes yeah. in. Claw your eyes and steal your breath. Breathe your soul in. Maybe the cat would steal people's breath. I don't know. My grandmother literally, my auntie, would say that. Like, we grew up, like, the cat will steal your breath. The cat steals a baby's breath. The cat steals a baby's breath. That's why I hate cats. Yeah, but cats, when you really think of it, they're only going into the baby's crib because it's warm. And the baby's just not big enough to fend it off. So oh, they, so it's the baby's fault. So they sit on the baby and they crush and it. And crush it. It's not the cat's fault. They just do what cats do. Well, they're evil. All right. It's the parents' fault for not putting something over the goddamn crib. Yes, put a top on that crib. They do. They put tops on the cribs now to keep cats out of them. Don't have cats if you have to put a top on the crib. Listen. Oh, my Listen. God. Listen. All right. Okay. On that note. I'm going to do an episode on cats and why they're evil. Oh, are you? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to do one on kids and why they're evil. <laughs> Well, I will agree with you. <laughs> so that's that. All right. Because <laughs> I love dogs too, so I can't even say they're evil. <laughs> All right. Except for the dogs that like to lick themselves to death. Oh, Just like mine. Mm-hmm. Little, little Pluto. Mm-hmm. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we will see you in October. Bye. Bye. Like, subscribe, rate, and review the Scissors and Scrubs podcast on whatever podcast app you listen to us on. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Scissors and Scrubs. And email us any of your stories or thoughts to scissorsandscrubs at gmail.com.